Well, good evening. I bring you greetings from Southside Baptist Church in Abilene, Texas. And it's a real joy and honor uh, for us to be here. It's overdue. I love this church. We love this church. It's been a joy to pray for you all with regularity and uh, to be a co-partner in the gospel. Uh, Texans have pretty bad English to begin with, and we have a pretty thick accent as well, and we talk too fast. So I'm going to do my best here to just slow down a notch or two than what I normally preach. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, before we start, though, let me ask the Lord's blessing one more time. If you'll pray with me. Father, we're thankful for your work here and your work in Texas, your work among the nations and our neighbors. We're thankful that we have this word. We're thankful that you are there and you are not silent, but you have spoken to us. You haven't left us in the dark. And so we thank you for revealing yourself through your word through which we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through your living and abiding word. All flesh is like grass. All human glory is like the flower of the field. The grass will wither and the flowers will fall, but your word will endure forever. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our King, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, everyone God world without end. Amen. It's been said that today's most common poem, poem titles among young people is, Who Am I? More popular than ever, this issue of identity that everybody's asking. I'm not sure how many kids movies, particularly American made kids movies you all watch, but if you'll pay attention, that's often the theme. Think about Pinocchio, the frog prince, Huckleberry. Think about all the various princess stories that are really the same story. Most of them are about breaking free from any and all external authority so that she can find identity in herself. It's the worldview that we all now breathe called expressive individualism. This idea that we must be authentic to our true self with no outside authority to tell us otherwise or to keep you from expressing your particular individuality. We see it in the princess movies. Belle wants to abandon her provincial life. Rapunzel longs to escape from her tower prison. Cinderella wants to get away from the influence of her wicked stepmother in Cinderella Part 2, which I'm ashamed to say that, yes, I have seen. I have a 10-year-old daughter. Just one, two boys, a girl in the middle, two boys. There's this line right here. She says, I think it's time to stop following someone else's orders and start following your heart. Well, there it is. Expressive individualism in a princess cartoon. Ariel longs to leave the confines of the sea. I wonder if Frozen was as popular here as it was in the States. So listen to that Scandinavian intellectual we know as Elsa. Goes to the mountains where she can be her true self. Please refrain from singing. But what does she say? She says, don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through 
no rights, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Expressive individualism. Dr. Seuss, cat in the hat. Be who you are and say what you feel. Expressive individualism in kids' literature. We live in the age of the self, the age of the selfie. iGen is what we call it, with a focus on the eye, the age of the iPhone, so that we have this power computer in our pockets that are all curated to you. Makes you seem like the center of the universe. That's really changed a generation. We're all really just one big social experiment. On average, the person touches their iPhone 2,617 times a day, all curated to you. Makes you the center of the universe. When you watch television commercials for smartphones, one of the biggest marketing pieces today is what? A better selfie camera. Footnote, did you know that more people die of selfie accidents than they do of shark accidents? It's true. But this was a problem long before the iPhone, right? It's not a new problem, this fascination with the self. It started in the Garden of Eden. You know the story, Genesis 3. What does the enemy come in and tempt them to do? So you will be like God. You can be the one who knows right and wrong. And the idea there is that you can be the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. You don't need him. You don't need any external authority. You do you. YOLO. You only live once. Really, the first Sin there in the Garden of Eden was that of autonomy. Autos from self and namos from law. To be your own law. Self-law, self-governed. Forget God, you take His place, and you be the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. It's the air we breathe and it's not new. It's been there since Genesis 3. Listen to some modern slogans from various brands. They really don't even make sense. So Bud Light is a very cheap light beer. Their slogan is this. To those who write their own stories, this Bud is for you. How about Nike? Just do it. Burger King has gotten worse and worse. First it was Burger King. Y'all have Burger King. I saw one. Fast food burgers, right? First it was have it your way. And then they changed it to be your way. And now it's be you. Sometimes you got to break the rules. We're talking about burgers here. Burgers and fries. Bacardi rum. Some people embrace the night because the rules of the day do not apply. Easy Spirit. Now, I don't know about over here, but Easy Spirit in the States is a brand of shoes mostly worn by grandmas and grandpas. Easy Spirit says, it conforms to your foot so that you don't have to conform to anything. <laughs> Grandma, the rule breaker. <laughs> Neiman Marcus. Neiman Marcus is an up, upscale clothing store. No rules here. The message is that you, the individual, you are sovereign. You're the king. You're the queen. It's all about you. There was a survey given to college students in 2006. They weren't told what the survey was, but the survey was actually the narcissistic personality inventory. It's a test for narcissism. But they didn't know that, and so they had various statements that they would have to respond to, such as, I am an extraordinary person, or I am more capable than other people, or everybody likes to hear my stories. 
Or, if I ruled the world, it would in fact be a better place. It's been given to students for several decades, but we have seen now a 30% increase in narcissism over the last 30 years. In the 1950s, 12% of teens agreed with this statement, I am an important person. Just 12%. In the 1980s, which was still quite a long time ago, 80% agreed with that statement. 12% to 80%. We don't even realize it, but we're, we're all a bunch of narcissists surrounded by a bunch of narcissists. What was once considered the deadliest sin of all, pride, is now celebrated. Be you. You're the best. Embrace yourself. Express yourself. Promote yourself. You're number one. The author George MacDonald said that hell runs according to one principle, and that is, I am my own. Frank Sinatra, famous song, I did it my way. C.S. Lewis said that, that there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Well, what does Jesus Christ say about the self? He does not say, you do you. What does he say? He says, you deny you. It's the first call of the gospel is self-denial. Jesus is after self-giving, self-sacrifice, not self-focus and self-expression. He came and died, in fact, 2 Corinthians 5.15, that we might no longer live for ourselves. It's one of the purposes of the cross is that we would not live for ourselves, but live for Him. And this is a challenge to us and it's a challenge to our world because self-centeredness is really the DNA of sin. We all have this tendency to want to exalt the self. How does the prophet Isaiah describe it? We have all each his own, turned his own way. That's why Augustine described sin as being curved in on the self. 2 Timothy 3.2, people will be lovers of self. And so in our fallen tendency, we tend to look inward for identity and for value and for meaning and for authority. And so not only is the world telling us to look inward to find our identity, our own fallen flesh leans that way, curves that way. Well, what does God's Word say? If you've got a Bible, let's look at the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. Let's read those first 11 verses. Philippians, chapter 3. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Main point is we should find our identity in Christ, not in the self. Let's consider three characteristics of the people of God from this passage. First, we worship Jesus not the self. We worship Jesus, not the self. Look again at those first two verses. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that German theologian and martyr, noted that normally when you teach, you teach information so that you don't have to teach it again. He says this, it's of the essence of teaching that it seeks to render itself no longer necessary. But that's not the case with Christian truth, is it? No. We repeat it weekly. It's the very thing that it requires because we forget so easily. And so we need to hear it again and again, which is one of the reasons why we do eat weekly. It's because we're formed over time with the repetitive practices of corporate worship. And so Paul here says, look, to repeat it, it's no problem. It's safe, actually. It's good for you. And what does he do here? He warns against false teachers. These false teachers that were adding to the gospel. And so they had believed in Jesus. Yes, Jesus is necessary. He's just not enough. You need to do some other things. Much like we have with the letter to the Galatians. Yeah, trust Jesus, but you need to add some other things. And so notice how Paul addresses them. This problem, this problem of self-salvation, which is the default of the human heart. It's the default soteriology of fallen mankind. God helps those who help themselves. And so Paul here wants to correct them like he does in Galatians, like he does in so many other places. He warns, watch out for the dogs. It's not a, it's not a kind term. Dogs, I don't know about here, but dogs in America have elevated beyond children now. Uh, I was in same not just not just in North America and South America as well. I was in Colombia about two weeks ago, and we were in a mall food court, and there were dogs everywhere in the mall. There was even a little dog wearing a diaper. That was the first. Not the case in the first century. You would find no dogs in diapers. They were unclean scavengers in the first century. And so when Paul says, "Look out for the dogs," he's talking trash. This is a term of derision. Watch out for those unclean scavengers. Watch out for. these evil workers. See, they're wanting to add works. They think they're about good works. Say, yes, Jesus is enough. You need to add some good works. But when you try to add good works to Jesus, they become evil. Watch out for the evil workers. Because you try to supply anything with Jesus, you're taking away. He needs no help. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. One of the things that they were telling these Christians they needed to do to be fully right with what God was to be circumcised. Much again, like we see in Galatia. Yes, Jesus is good. He's not enough. You need to add this as well. And so Paul says, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's actually alluding, I think, to 1 Kings here, where you had these pagans who were cutting themselves. 
trying to get their false god to respond. So look, you're acting like pagans. These false teachers are unclean, they're evil, and ultimately they're pagan. What about us though? Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's an identity verse if there ever was one. He says, we are the circumcision. Now it's kind of a strange title, especially if you're new to the Bible, but remember what circumcision was. Circumcision was very important in the Old Covenant. Think about the promises given to Abraham in Genesis 17. What would mark the people of Abraham out? Literally mark them out. It was the covenant sign of circumcision. It's what marked the people of God out, made them distinct. The problem is they, they thought of themselves ultimately as elite instead of elect. They started viewing themselves as superior. They thought they were a cut above the uncircumcised. Rather than becoming a light to the nations, Israel became like the nations. Something wasn't working with Israel. Something was broken. And if you know the story of the Bible, the Old Covenant itself starts with idolatry, doesn't it? Moses is still on the mountain. And they're down there building a calf made of gold and giving it the glory, giving it the credits. And so they became like what they worshipped, stiff-necked, hard-hearted. And so the prophets begin to promise of this new work. Something's broken in Israel. Something has to be fixed. And the prophets speak of this new work, this new creation, this new covenant that God was going to do. Keep your finger or your ribbon in in Philippians. Flip back to the book of Jeremiah. It's a big book, sort of in the middle of the Bible. Go to Jeremiah chapter 4 with me. Verses 1 to 4. Jeremiah says, If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord to me, you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Israel had been physically circumcised. And here's a command to circumcise themselves. And he says, remove the foreskin of your hearts. It's taken on a different imagery. It's as if Israel has some some outer layer on their heart that makes it impossible to respond to God. And so the prophets promise God's going to do something new. Well, here it's a command, but they can't do it on their own. Flip a few pages to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25. Jeremiah 9, 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the son of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in hearts. And so this external rite of circumcision won't be enough. There needs to be a second circumcision, a circumcision of the hearts. Flip back early on in the story of Scripture to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord sets His heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. Think about how early in the story this is here. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And there's this command that you need another circumcision. You need an inward renewal. Flip to the end of Deuteronomy chapter 30. So we have the, the blessings of the covenant if they obey. And by the way, those are very small. Then you have the curses of the covenant at the end of the book. And those are actually quite large. Many more curses than blessings because the Lord and Moses ultimately knows that they're not going to keep this covenant. So look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. When all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Those other passages were commandments telling Israel, you must circumcise your heart. Here, you have the subject, God, and the verb, circumcise, this object, your hearts. God's going to do this. God in the future is going to circumcise your hearts. This is the promise of the new covenant where we find Full and final forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. We'll see this in session three. The prophet Ezekiel used this imagery of a stony heart being replaced by a heart of flesh. You see, mankind didn't need just a facelift. They needed heart surgery, a transplant. Ezekiel says the Spirit would remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. God would circumcise the hearts of His people. And he does so in the New Covenant. So here Paul tells the church at Philippi, you are the circumcision. We 
are the circumcision. We are the new covenant people of God who have inward transformation. We have new hearts when we trust Christ. We, he says, worship by the Spirit of God. Worship, we hear it a lot, so we don't think about it, but worship in the Old Covenant was a cultic term. People worshiped at certain times and certain places, namely the temple, and usually only priests. But in the New Covenant, the holy place has become the marketplace. The secular has been sanctified. Now all of life is worship because of the Spirit. And so we now are all priests who worship by the Spirit. We are the offspring of Abraham blessed with the Spirit. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit. We are the people of God. What is our identity? It's not about us. It's about being part of a people on whom the end of the ages has come. We are the people of the promise with circumcised hearts. He said thirdly there, we boast in Christ Jesus. We are the circumcision, we worship by the Spirit, and we boast in the Lord alone. Jeremiah 9 puts it this way, the wise man must not boast in his wisdom, the strong man must not boast in his strength, the wealthy man must not boast in his wealth, but the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love. We boast in Him. To boast in is to find our identity in. We find our identity in the Lord, in Christ. We put no confidence in the self, in the flesh, this fallen human tendency that wants to exalt the self. We put no confidence there. There's no room for boasting in and of ourselves. This is why we sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Augustine's favorite verse was 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Everything we have, including the very air we're breathing right now, is a gift from on high. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you didn't receive it, why are you acting as if you did? Everything is a gift. We can't boast in ourselves. Confidence in Christ and confidence in the self are mutually exclusive. They cannot mix. They do not go together. By the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, really glad you're here. If you're considering becoming a Christian, you know what the first step is? The first step is to lose all confidence in the self. So we sing, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Calvin said, we never truly glory in Him until we have utterly discarded our own glory. The elect are justified by the Lord in order that they may glory in Him and in no one else. So we worship Jesus, not the self. Number two, we don't look to the self for our identity. We don't look inward for meaning and significance and value and purpose. Look back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Philippians 3, 4, though, Paul says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, 
blameless. Paul says, oh, if we want to talk about self, reasons for boast, my resume is superior to all. Some of these advantages he lists were his from birth, some he gains. He was circumcised on the eighth day. From the very beginning, he was a lawkeeper. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the only one of the twelve born in the promised land. Only Benjamin and Judah remained loyal to the line of David. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, ethnically probably red Hebrew. He was a Pharisee. It was the strictest of the Jewish sects. He says in Galatians, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. He was at the top of the top. So extremely zealous was he for the traditions of his fathers. He persecuted the church. He thought Christians were opposing God and so would put them to death. When it comes to the laws, external commands, you could look at his life and say, Saul is blameless. Extremely good example of one who kept the Torah. He had it all going for him. If anyone had reason for confidence in the self, it was Paul, right? But what does he say? Number three, we find our identity in Christ. We look outward to Christ for meaning and significance and value and identity. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul disregards all those past achievements focused on the self. They used to be gain, now they are loss. The Bible uses language of a ledger here. All that was in the credit column has been moved over to the debit column. Now only Christ is in the credit column. Only Christ is of surpassing value to Him. Worth more than all we have. That's why Jesus describes the kingdom like a treasure buried in a field. A man finds, reburies it, sees the treasure, looks around. No one's looking. Let me bury the treasure and let me go. And it says, in his joy. He sells all that he has and he goes and he buys that field. He came to see his entire past as loss. With the bank balance of heaven, none of our self-reformation project counts as credit. Only Christ. Everything else is filth. Literally, that's what he says. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This word is a very crude word, actually. Refuse, filth, excrement, garbage. And so, friends, I would just ask you, what is your life aim? What is your purpose in life? Is it to gain Christ? Is it to know Him? Do you know Him? Do you want to know Him more? Are you basing your identity on Him or on you and your achievements, your status? Where are you finding your worth? What do you look to for meaning, value, significance, identity? Is it wealth? Is it your education? Is it your job? Is it your status? Is it your popularity? Is it your emotional stability? Is it your relationships? What is it that you boast in? Is it Jesus? Is Jesus your constant boast? If you're looking for meaning or significance or identity in anything else, 
you're climbing a ladder and you're only going to discover that it's leaning against the wrong building. Look at verse 9. He wants to gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, as we trust in Christ, we're united to Him. Union with Christ. He says, I want to be found in Him. You know, the noun Christians only used three times in the New Testament, but the phrase in Christ or a variation of in Christ is found 165 times. When we think about our identity, that's the first thing we could think of. We're no longer in Adam now. We are in Christ. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. And Ephesians 1 says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? That means that what matters most about you is that you were secure in Christ before you had even heard of Christ. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And notice what the apostle says about the status of believers. When we trust in Jesus, we're given this new status of righteous. It's referring to our right standing before God. The word is the same root word as our word for justification. You see, the problem for us, our fundamental problem, and we have many problems in this room, but fundamentally the problem is that God requires perfect righteousness. He's holy. He does not grade on a curve. He doesn't wipe sins under the rug. He requires perfection. He requires righteousness. And the problem is none of us are there. None of us are righteous. Romans 3.10. No, not one. But notice four things about this righteousness here in this verse, in verse 9. First, it's found in Him. It's, this righteousness is found in Christ. Calvin said that first we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from Him. Separated from all that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race. It remains useless to us and of no value. But we are counted righteous in Christ. Again, all people are either in Adam or in Christ. Condemnation or justification. That's the only two options. And when we trust in Christ, we're united to Him and we're counted righteous. We're justified by faith. Romans 3.24 We are freely justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. By faith and faith alone, we are united to Christ and what's true of Him becomes true of us. We are declared in the right by faith. It's found in Him. We are clothed. We are robed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus when we trust Him. Counted righteous in Christ. The second thing he says about this righteousness in verse 9 is that it's not found by our own doing. He says, not having a righteousness of my own. We're not made righteous, not declared righteous by our own doing. You can never gain God's favor by good deeds. Doesn't matter how much your good may outweigh your bad. It's never enough. George Whitfield said, we might as well build a rope made of sand and climb it to the moon, then be saved by our own performance. 
We are receivers by faith, not earners by our own performance. Flip over to the book of Romans, chapter 4, verse 4. Who are we? We are righteous in Christ. By faith, not by our own doing. Romans 4, 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if you go to work and you work eight hours, and your job, your boss gives you your paycheck and says, here's your gift. That's not a gift. I worked all day for that. That's my wages. That's my due. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You don't work for this righteousness. You believe. You don't earn it. It's a gift freely given. Again, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Or we sing the old hymn, Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete. Or not the labors of my hands, can fulfill thy law's demands. This righteousness is not gained by us. It is not earned by us. Third, this gift of righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is not my own doing, but faith in Jesus Christ. It's important to say too, it's not just mere faith. It's not just faith in faith. We ought not to say, well, I'm a person of faith. That at the end of the day means nothing. Our faith must have an object and it does. We are those who have faith in Jesus Christ. At least in the West, people assume that all leads, all roads will lead to God as long as you have faith. As long as you're sincere. Whatever you believe, as long as you're sincere about your generic faith, well, we've already seen the Apostle Paul was as about as sincere as it comes. And what did he consider his sincerity? Rubbish. Garbage. He was sincerely committed to Judaism, advancing beyond his years, but he came to find out that he was sincerely wrong. God demands perfect righteousness. We can't gain it, but by trusting in Christ, we're counted righteous in Him. And then the fourth thing we learn about this righteous status from verse 9 is that it's a gift from God. This righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, we're given, we are granted the status of righteous when we trust in Christ. It's a gift from Him. He says the same thing in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the goodness of the gospel. This is the glory of the good news, that God, by faith, grants what He demands. Gift righteousness. Oh, and what a precious gift it is. Dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We need a righteousness outside of us that we cannot produce, and in Christ, He has provided it if we will receive it with the empty hands of faith.
So who are you? You're righteous in Christ. When God looks upon you, doesn't matter how bad your day's been, when God looks upon you, you know what He sees. He sees His Son because your life is hidden in Christ. He sees the perfection of His beloved Son in whom He's well pleased. So we needed an outward problem. The world has it backwards, right? The world says we have an outward problem and an inner solution. But the worldview given to us by the Scriptures is that we've got an inner problem and an outward solution. And this is really the problem of all humans. At the root of the human condition is this struggle for righteousness and this struggle for identity. The question that is the most popular poem of today is, who am I? And do I matter? And do I measure up? All humanity is asking this. I was struck by an interview. It's very old now, but I read the interview more recently with Madonna. Now, I'm not a Madonna fan. I'm sure you're not either. Most of you probably heard of Madonna. I did not realize this, but Madonna is the billboard, which is a big, big measurement of success, success for music in the United States. And Madonna is the number two billboard artist of all time behind the Beatles. So in terms of what she's trying to do, she's very successful in worldly terms. Her goal is to be at the top. Well, she's pretty close to the top, but she admitted this in a recent interview, I mean, an interview several years ago. She says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, number two billboard artist of all time, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. End quote. All people long for this sense of purpose and approval, to be satisfied and accepted and fulfilled, to be happy, to have meaning, intimacy, community, purpose, joy, approval, security, significance, and we're designed to find these not in the self, but in Christ. So don't base your identity on you or your performance. Or on the standards that others impose on you. Don't look inward for identity. Don't look outward. Look upward to Christ for your identity. Verse 10. Philippians 3.10 That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul just wants to know Him. He wants to have this ever-deepening relationship with Christ that ultimately ends in resurrection. He wants to abide with Him. He wants to know the power of life. He wants to know what it is to participate in His suffering. He wants to become like Him in His death. doesn't mean we'll be crucified by the Romans, but that we die to self for the sake of others again and again and again. Death to self, actually. What's the path to life? Not self-exaltation. It's death to self for the good of others. Self-sacrifice is the path. C.S. Lewis says, nothing not dead will be resurrected. If you want to get to the resurrection of the dead, this is the only path. The way to life is through death to self. And I just find it striking that the Apostle Paul was knocked off his horse 30 years prior to the writing of this letter. And what is his passion still? To know the Lord. I just ask, do you still long to know the Lord? 
We'll spend all eternity getting to know him better and better and better. Jesus says, this is eternal life that you may know that they may know you. And it begins now. So if you're not a Christian, you may think, you know what? God could, God could never accept me. I'm just too bad off. Well, remember the apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, he killed Christians. So your right standing is not a matter of your performance. It comes through faith in Christ, not what you have or have not done. The righteousness that counts before God is not your own. It's a gift from God received through faith in Christ. You know, it's interesting that in our churches, at least in the States, often we'll hear testimonies and we also often want the most exciting testimonies. And usually it's testimonies about people leaving the garbage of immorality. They were addicted to drugs and they were doing this and that and God radically converted them. Praise God that that happens. They were the drunk. They were the addict. They were the wicked. But you know what we don't hear testimonies about enough? is people leaving the garbage of moralism for the sake of Christ. You know, I was, I was really a good kid. I obeyed all the rules. Very clean. Raised around Christianity, but I was trusting in myself. And now I see that that was moralism, not gospel Christianity. Now I cling to Christ and Christ alone through faith alone. All that past performance is garbage. And now I want to gain Christ. And so I would just ask, who are you trusting in? Are you looking to the self? If you're a Christian, are you trusting in the self? Again, this is the default mode of the human heart. And so this is why we must preach the gospel again and again and again to ourselves as believers. Are you trusting in yourself? Or are you trusting in the fact that you were baptized? Circumcised the eighth day. You're trusting in the fact, no, I'm good because I have a Christian family of the tribe of Benjamin. You know the Bible decently well. You have the right answers. Hebrew of Hebrews. No, righteousness that counts before God is only found in Christ, appropriated by trust in His finished work. And so who are you? Our fundamental identity is Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. We look to Him. Theologian A.W. Pink once said that the great mistake made by people is hoping to discover in themselves that which is to be found in Christ alone. The great mistake made by people is hoping to discover in themselves that which is to be found in Christ alone. Colossians 3 puts it this way, Christ who is your life. We look outside the self to find the self. Christ is your life. We are the circumcision, the new covenant people of God. We put no confidence in the self. We consider all our past performances rubbish that we may be, gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of our own, but the gift of righteousness that comes through faith alone. And our main aim in life now is not to have the self exalted, but to have Christ glorified. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. It's clarity on who we were and who we are and who we can be. Thank you that you have met our greatest need. Our fundamental need more than anything is a Savior, and you've provided just that. You demand perfect righteousness that we can never attain, yet in the gift of the gospel, 
we can receive perfect righteousness through faith and faith alone. I pray that you would help us to walk in, a, in the status of righteousness. Help us to remember. Help us to regularly preach the gospel to ourselves. And may this be a true gospel foundation upon which we can now live. We pray it for the sake of Christ. Amen.